Welcome to Reader, I Murdered Him, a real podcast about fake crimes. Every week I'll tell you about one of my favorite books, but like it's true crime. This podcast isn't spoiler free, so listen at your own risk. Wakarusa, Indiana is a small town filled with only good, God-fearing people. At least that's how the locals tell it. And if you're an outsider, that's probably about the only story you're going to get. But among the locals in Wakarusa, every one of those good, God-fearing people is walking a fine line to stay that way. The gossip in Wakarusa can be brutal. From who fell asleep at church when they should have been praying to who bought one too many bottles at the local liquor store. And don't you just know what that means. There are two types of small towns in the Midwest. The first is the once vibrant small town that relied on an industry that is no longer the heartbeat of the American economy. Factory towns where all the work has been outsourced. Mining towns built on coal where the mines have dried up or the jobs have moved away. Oil towns facing the same dilemma. These small towns are mostly shuttered, the downtown storefronts are mostly empty, and the people still living in them are just barely hanging on and their kids dream about moving away to somewhere their lives can be filled with opportunities. The second are small towns that might not be thriving the way they used to, but still manage to pull through. They might not have a dozen options for pizza in a single mile radius, but there's still that one place to order from. The storefronts are open, and you can imagine your life there and somewhere else. Wakarusa was the second kind of small town. Only 30 minutes outside of South Bend, the Indiana town most famous for being the home of Notre Dame Catholic University and home to the Fighting Irish. Wakarusa was close enough to the city to still be getting new blood to revitalize its economy. And if you were looking for a job, the highway commute wouldn't set you back too many hours in your day. All in all, Wakarusa would normally be the kind of town you only know about because you're from there or you have people from there. The kind of town that, when people ask you where you're from, you do the geographical equivalent of rounding up and say, just outside of South Bend, Indiana, and then move on. But that all changed in 1994 when Chrissy Jacobs woke up early one morning to a threat written in blood-red paint across her kitchen wall and her six-year-old daughter's empty bed. Today, we're going to Wakarusa, Indiana to cover the case that will forever rest on the hearts of every one of its residents. I'm your host, Risa P., and this is the case of January Jacobs. If you were to ask the people of Wakarusa to describe Chrissy and Billy Jacobs, the story you'd get would sound like a Trisha Yearwood song. But that wouldn't be the whole story. Chrissy was the wild, popular girl, a head-turning knockout. 
and Billy was essentially Wakarusa royalty. The Jacobs family owned most of the land Wakarusa was on, and Billy, with blonde hair and a football player's physique, was the definition of a Midwest small-town prince. Although Billy wasn't the kind of popular Chrissy was, he was more reserved, and his life hadn't been all fairy tales. While Billy grew up rich, both of his parents died in a car accident when he was young, and he was raised by his grandmother until she died, leaving him with both a fortune and a legacy to uphold all on his own. And while everyone in town remembered Chrissy and Billy as high school sweethearts, they actually didn't start up their whirlwind romance until the summer after their senior year. Billy had the funds to go to any college he wanted, and Chrissy had dreams about going to New York City to dance on stage as a rocket. But before any of those dreams could become reality, Chrissy found out she was pregnant. Billy did what he thought a guy in that position was supposed to do. He changed his plans, bought Chrissy a ring and a house. He set out to work as a farmer, putting in brutal hours to provide for his family with his own two hands. And while Chrissy said yes to it all, there was always a sense, according to the gossip mill of Wakarusa, that she could have been a little more grateful for it. Like maybe she was letting herself get caught up in Billy's idea of the right thing to do, but she didn't really want any of it. But those rumors started to settle down after the baby. Babies, actually, as Chrissy had given birth to twins, January and Jace, were born. Chrissy and Billy seemed like the perfect parents with the perfect family. They seemed so happy. And that made what happened to January seem like even more of a tragedy. Not that what happened to January wouldn't have been a tragedy if it happened to someone else. But because the Jacobs were such good people, it made it feel like if this could happen to them, it could happen to anyone. The morning Chrissy Jacobs lost her daughter, she woke up with her alarm at 5 a.m., like usual. She went downstairs to the kitchen to start her morning routine, which probably looks like the routines of a lot of other mothers of young children. You head to the kitchen trying not to make too much noise so you can get in that first cup of coffee while the house is still silent and you can hear yourself think. You tell yourself you're going to take some time for yourself, but end up planning out the day in your head and making a list of all the things you still have to do. You empty the dishwasher. If you're feeling ambitious, you get out something to thaw for dinner. And even if you're busy, you're content because you're resting in that early morning feeling of knowing that your family, your kids, your people are all safe in bed and everything is good. But that peace was broken for Chrissy Jacobs when she saw the words, that bitch is gone, this is what you get, written in red paint. She screamed and Billy ran downstairs to see what was wrong, closely followed by their son Jace, now six years old, who'd been woken up by the noise. The only person who hadn't come downstairs was January. Billy and Chrissy searched everywhere for their daughter, but by 5.30, they had to accept the reality that January was gone. They called the police and reported her missing. 
The only sign inside the house that something was amiss was that a basement window was broken. Billy tries to convince local police that this must be how someone got into the house and stole their daughter from her bed. But there are no other signs of a struggle. No shattered glass anywhere else, no blood, no unaccounted for fingerprints. While the state police get involved quickly in the case, the local police make some mistakes that could have set the investigation back. They do an initial search of the scene without gloves and don't seem quite as forceful about preserving the scene as the state police are. This could be because Wakarusa is a small town and the cops and the Jacobs all know each other. But it could also be because small police forces don't get many missing persons cases. They weren't really sure what they were dealing with. But when the state police get involved, there hasn't been that much time lost. And there's one thing about the Jacobses, and January in particular, that seems to catch their interest. January was involved in dance from toddlerhood, which isn't that unusual. Parent and tot dance classes are pretty synonymous with young children. But this wasn't just a way to get out and socialize for January anymore. She really loved it and got serious enough about dance to be able to go to competitions. But if you've ever been to dance competitions, you know that some of the costumes, especially the ones assigned to young girls, can raise eyebrows. And police immediately see those costumes and January's public appearances in them as something that could have attracted a predator into her life. This is heartbreaking for Chrissy, who encouraged January in dance because it seemed to be a passion they could both share. And while she never forced January to compete, at least she never considered herself to be the worst of the stage mothers, it also never occurred to her that she could have been presenting her daughters to predators at all. But now that the possibility has been presented to her, Chrissy is filled with guilt. As she's interviewed with police, she begins to ruminate on every face she'd ever seen at January's dance recitals, specifically trying to recall any older men who showed up and didn't seem attached to any of the dancers. Men who were there on their own, watching young girls, parents so frazzled with their minds focused on costume changes and keeping control of siblings, they wouldn't immediately notice just one more face in the audience. Chrissy begins to make a list of anyone even approaching suspicious. But before she can do more than start to list her suspicions, Detective Townsend interrupts the interview with the news no mother ever wants to get. The body of a small girl has been found on the side of the road fewer than two miles from the Jacob's home. Chrissy knows even before she's taken with Billy to the morgue to identify the body. Of course it's January. Who else could it be? Wakarusa is a small town, and no other little girls are missing. With the appearance of January's body, the tone of the investigation changes. This is now a murder investigation, and Billy and Chrissy are no longer just grieving parents. They're suspects. Police bring them back home, ask them to pack bags, and then they're escorted to a hotel 
where they stay until a homicide team finishes processing their home for potential evidence. While the Indiana State Police assure Chrissy and Billy they'll do everything they can to solve their daughter's murder, the case goes cold for 25 years. It isn't until 2019 when journalist Margot Davies comes back to her hometown to take care of her uncle Luke that there's any movement on the case at all. January Jacobs isn't just some missing girl for Margot. They were the same age, they were both from Wakarusa, and their families knew each other. Even though they weren't close, there was a connection there that made January feel real to Margot. And Margot decides she's going to use her time back home to solve the case. She's going to find out what happened to January Jacobs. And maybe get justice for some other missing girls along the way, too. Today's podcast is brought to you by Matilda Straw Hair Care Products. You know that seamlessly glossy color and silky smooth texture you can only get your hair to achieve after a trip to a pricey salon? Well, all it takes is a quick online search of our customer reviews to see that Matilda Straw Hair Care products do not offer you anything like that. Instead of colors like autumnal ombre, red or goldilocks blonde, Matilda Straw offers a variety of options from tarnished penny bronze to still reluctantly gray, but now my hair is falling out. Their multi-step at-home coloring procedure is so complex, there's no way you'll really be able to do it yourself. And after spending a small fortune on color correctors and hours online trying to connect with the customer care cosmetologist, you'll still need to clear your evenings to head into the salon. Matilda Straw Hair Care Products. Don't burn any bridges with your local stylist. Now, Margot's interest in the January Jacobs case didn't just come out of the blue. While she admitted to always having the January case in the back of her mind, what really brings it into focus is the disappearance of another girl, five-year-old Natalie Clark of Nepany, Indiana. On the surface, the details of Natalie's case seem pretty different. She was taken from a crowded playground rather than her own bedroom. Even the police investigating the case say there's no connection. But Margot can't help but tie the two cases together. Or technically, three. Because three years prior to Natalie Clark's disappearance, Seven-year-old Polly Lemon had disappeared from a mall parking lot in Dayton, Ohio, with her body later being found in a ditch. Margot can't shake the feeling there's a story here, and a lot of the Wakarusa locals agree with her. In the years shortly after January's body was found, the town turned against the Jacobs family, Chrissy Jacobs in particular. January was six years old and winning dance competitions, the light of her father's life. She looked like she had a bright future ahead of her and a possible career as a professional dancer, something her mother, who had to sacrifice those dreams when she found out she was pregnant, would never have. Add that to a marriage where rumor had it, the spark wasn't as fire bright as it used to be, 
and people were willing to believe Chrissy was jealous of her daughter. Jealous enough to kill her? Well, no one went so far as to actually say that. And then, ten years after January's death, Chrissy took her own life, and the town was of two minds, whether it was grief or guilt, that drove her to it. But when Polly and then Natalie disappear, town sentiment starts to change. Now everyone starts to see January as the first in a series of victims. And they're all willing to dig up old dirt for Margot to help her make that case. But then the Jacob's barn is defaced again. This time with the words, she will not be the last. Just one more sign to Margot and a fair number of Wakarusa residents that Natalie's disappearance is undoubtedly connected to January's. Margot is so convinced of this connection, she goes back to Detective Townsend at the Wakarusa Police Department, prepared to demand that he take her theory seriously. But Townsend comes back with information that makes Margot doubt everything she ever thought about the case. As far as Townsend and the other officers are concerned, January's murder has already been solved, and her killer is already dead. Officer Townsend shares with Margot in a personal interview that the officers all suspected Chrissy was holding back information from the initial investigation. And after January's body is found, the police use cadaver dogs to try and find where January's body might have been prior to her final resting place. And the dogs pick up the scent in the back of Chrissy's car. That, along with fibers from January's nightgown, make it clear that January's body was in Chrissy's car the night of her disappearance. The only thing the police didn't have was a clear-cut motive. And with the crime scene at the house so contaminated, it was impossible for the police to make an airtight case against Chrissy. So she walked free. And this story does make a kind of tragic sense. But Margot's gut is still telling her not all the pieces here fit. She has too many unanswered questions to let it rest. Even if Chrissy did kill her daughter, Margot needs to know why. So she keeps digging. And an unnamed source at the police department shares a piece of information with her that Townsend withheld. In addition to the forensic evidence found in Chrissy's car, Investigators also found blood, but not on anything of Chrissy's. The blood was found on Jace's pajamas, and no one could ever figure out why. Now Margot has a new lead, and she turns all of her attention to finding Jace Jacobs. Jace Jacobs was the sour to his sister's sweet and even more so after her death. People in Wakarusa pointed to him as a sign of his mother's bad parenting. Growing up, the only thing people had to say about him was that he was nothing but trouble. So it wasn't surprising to Margot that Jace chose to leave Wakarusa and make a life for himself somewhere else. But Margot does manage to track him down to Chicago.
And while Jace has a reputation for refusing to talk to anyone from Wakarusa, he agrees to talk to Margot. And the story he tells changes the whole course of her investigation, not just for January's case, but for Natalie and Polly's as well. According to Jace, Chrissy did transport January's body in her car that night, but not because she'd killed her daughter. Jace was up in the middle of the night that night, as six-year-olds sometimes are, and noticed that January wasn't in her bed, so he went looking for his sister, and Jace found her at the bottom of the basement steps. According to Jace, she looked peaceful, but there was a lot of blood and she wasn't moving. As a six-year-old, he didn't think to be concerned with a crime scene. He just looked at his sister and tried to figure out what to do. And then his mother came and found him in January, and she jumped to a conclusion, the wrong conclusion, about what had happened. She thought she had to protect her son, so she moved January's body, she painted the words in red to confuse the investigation, But by trying to protect Jace, she actually ruined the scene of the real crime. And just as Margot is about to leave with more pieces of the puzzle fitting together, but no closer to a solution, she asks Jace if he remembers his sister ever mentioning anyone a lot. And Jace jokes about January's imaginary friend, a friend who played with her at the park and went to her dance recitals a friend she called Elephant Wallace. But here's the thing. January isn't the only missing girl who knew him. Elliot Wallace was a suspect Margot interviewed when she'd covered the Polly Lemon case. Elliot's name had come up when another woman who had a daughter in Polly's young equestrian program had been interviewed. Wallace had a history of lurking around the stables where the girls practiced. He didn't have any children in the program, he was out of place, and he made people uncomfortable. But the police couldn't find any direct evidence linking him to the murder, so they were never able to press charges. But Margot, Margot isn't limited by the law. And she is able to get information about a storage unit Wallace has in a town only 10 minutes away from Wakarusa. And her gut is telling her that this storage unit is where she's finally going to find information that closes January's case once and for all. At an initial glance, the storage unit is full of the usual collection of junk typical of storage units. Old furniture, books with cracked spines... Nothing at all that would point to him as not only January's killer, but a serial predator. At least not until Margot comes to the last box. A box filled with plastic containers, each neatly labeled and dated with blood-chilling precision. Natalie, Hannah, Mia, Polly. Each box contained a stolen collection of girlhood. Water bottles covered in stickers, hairbrushes, hair clips, and photos. Stacks of photos. And at the very bottom of the box, the first container ever collected, is the name January. 
it doesn't take long for Elliot Wallace to be arrested. And while it's not a satisfying end to January's case, it's one where all the puzzle pieces fit together. And it's a case that police have no difficulty proving to prosecutors, or that prosecutors have any trouble proving to a jury. What's disappointing is that Margot Davies' piece on January Jones, Polly Lemon, Natalie Clark, and the other eight missing girls proved that she had a bright future ahead of her as a true crime reporter, one who was willing to put herself in the position of the victim to get them justice while showing them empathy. But Margot never writes another piece after that. In fact, Margot Davies doesn't seem to have been heard from by anyone outside of Wakarusa after she closed the January Jones case. Maybe dealing with all that tragedy was too much for her to want to return to the true crime space. Or maybe it was something else. Maybe what happened to Margot Davies was the real last piece of the puzzle to the case of January Jacobs. Thank you for listening to Reader, I Murdered Him. If you loved the January Jacobs case and want all the details I couldn't fit into today's episode, or if you want to know what happened to reporter Margot Davies, go check out All Good People Here by Ashley Flowers from your local library or indie bookstore. It's Flowers' debut thriller, but if you're a true crime podcast fan, you'll know her from Crime Junkie. And you can tell all her experience with true crime went into creating a realistic yet unbelievable domestic thriller. And once you've finished reading, come talk about this week's book in the Reader I Murdered Him podcast book club on Goodreads. And if you have any notes, feedback, stories, or kind words to share, you can always reach me at readerimurderedhimpod at gmail.com. All the links are in the show notes. Thank you again for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And maybe even share it with a friend or three who might like it too. I'll see you next week for another episode of Reader, I Murdered Him. Salvis Mr. Lee.